Welcome to the Tone Duff Sessions, hosted by Bruce Duff, author of The Smell of Death, musician, producer, and artist manager. The conversations are recorded at Tone Duff Studio in Hollywood, California, and are a feature of Rare Bird Radio. Let me introduce everybody oh, yeah, here yeah, so yeah. we know what's going <laughs> on. So this is Alan McDonald and Iris Berry. Alan wrote uh, Punk Elegies and Iris runs a company called Punk Hostage Press and just uh, I just got her book uh, The Daughters of Bastards and we're going to talk about both of these books. They sort of relate to the same topic but not necessarily on the same time frame. I, is that safe to say? You think? Uh, we overlap a lot of themes, we overlap a lot of attitudes. My, well this story that I'm going to read because I'm re-editing it because I told you it got rushed because it was when, when Punk Cossage first started out, Razor and I said we'll do our books first because we're learning so if we're going to make mistakes we're going to do them on our books and we learned never book a launch party before your book's done because then before you know it, life happens, and then the launch party's coming, and your book's not done, right. and so you have to rush it. So hence, typos. it got rushed, and there was a couple of stories. That I learned got that left same out. thing working at a record company. Right? Oops. Yeah, it's the worst thing you could do. Problem at the plant is what no. we used to say. Oh, it's not here. You can't rush something creative because it takes on a life of its own. Especially if it's in print, because then you look back and you find the mistakes, and you can't fix them. Well, That's we can of, now. Yeah. And yeah, but all those copies are out there. You can't like track people down. Like I know. Let me. Let me. Oh, did I have? Um, oh yeah. No. And the first run, joking around. I have this crazy stalker that because I wouldn't be his girlfriend's is like just all over the internet, like saying these horrible things about me. And um, I was joking and with Razor, and I go, yeah, we should just thank him. And I go, just kidding. And he put it in the first run. I'm like, no, I was kidding. Yeah. No, I was kidding. But anyway. Well, I have worse than that. I have the word irregardless starting a chapter in my first book. And it's, it's there. So. These things happen. I said, Hey, I saw one in a Damon Runyon book. I saw typos. I'm, but you know what? I found like when I had to go through my book uh, with the Rare Bird people, I'd read it so many times, I didn't see mistakes anymore. Well, you eyes think... You know what I mean? I know what it's supposed what, to say. Yeah, exactly. So I gave it to my wife to read it, and she didn't divorce me. And uh, <laughs> and then the edit, editing at Rare Bird is pretty good. So I thought it was pretty clean, you know? And I gave it to this one guy who had also written a book, a friend of mine, and he sent me, like, all these correct... I mean, like, two pages of yep. corrections. I'm like, really? Yep. It's, but no other matter, than that, how'd no you matter, like it? No matter how many eyes... It just it they it's your eyes see what they think they're supposed to see. It helps if you have trained people. Like the red bird people are pretty good. <laughs> yeah, like, no, they're pretty the, good. And it's funny. Like uh, I had Lena Lacaro in last week, and we were talking about the miracle of fact checkers and proofreaders, which is there's so much stuff out the there to read heroes. and everything now. But those people are almost all but gone. I don't know they if they anyone don't uses them. Okay. I have some, I have two new people that are pretty amazing. Thank God, they're literally the unsung heroes because they like it. And, you know. At Hustler, we had an entire research department with a research head, and then they had three associate researchers under that research head. Then we had a copy department, which had, was, was a copy editor for each magazine, and there was a copy chief in, in charge of the copy editors. Well, we were talking and, about RIP Magazine earlier, which was part of the Hustler empire, and I worked there for their entire run. And, you know, you could say what you want about Larry Flint. Those were the most professionally run uh, you know, yeah. publications I ever worked for. I mean, that was a machine. And nothing got out if it wasn't checked and double-checked. That's amazing. It was, that was pretty really cool. Though. It's a, care care Larry, well, Larry had this thing where he knew he hadn't been educated and he didn't want that. 
He didn't want any to be able to look at his work, his magazines, and go, "Hey, look, this is an uneducated person." You know, so he was really put a lot of money in and recruited people who could really do it. That's I, why I started there as an assistant proofreader. I respect that actually. In I my mean, twenty years, and I understand how because he was Larry Flint, and good for him. I mean, good, he did. You know, he was Larry Flint. I think he, despite he is still probably he is still yeah, yeah. and. I don't know. I have I have a lot of good feeling and regard and reverence for him, despite what. I mean, I didn't know him personally, but he was <gasps> pretty. Uh, I bought a house. He took care of people. Woohoo! Yeah. Sure. <laughs> uh, let me throw this out there, since both of your books to me seem to really have a lot to do with. Uh, because uh, I'll fess right up. Uh, you know, I was involved with a lot of punk rock. I would never in a million years call myself a punk rocker. I was a musician that happened to play in a bunch of punk bands. But I right. played all kinds of junk. And to me, your books were both about punk rock as a community, as uh, as a group of people that were outsiders that banded together uh, to strengthen each other, I guess. I, would you say that's fair? Yeah, I, and, I mean, I've never felt more at home. Or like and with that in mind, my, something I wondered about, because it's not addressed really in either of your books, was there sort of a lack of that prior to that, or were you guys part of any other sort of scene or group or anything before that? I was a loner. That? I grew up in the Valley of Pacoima, and like my, I grew up in a chop shop, literally, because like my brothers were in gangs, and they were, you know, lowering and tinting the cars, and... There was, it was a gang clubhouse, so there was a pool table, and my parents were gone out of the picture. And so, and I was, my friends thought I was a weirdo because that's all they, that's, that was their far, their vision, you know. And I saw friends getting married to guys that were going to jail. And I'm, so, luckily, I worked at this place called the um, Rock Corporation and, on Oxnard, owned by a biker and um, um, the illegitimate son of Bugsy Siegel. And that's the first time I actually got to see punk rock, I think it was in 77 or 78. Like, X played, The Simpletones played. Mm -hmm. I introduced them, it was their first show. And so... Whose first show? The Simpletones. Oh. And so, yeah, I, I, was such a, I was such a freak to all where I, when I, where I grew up. So when I found punk rock, I was like, oh, wow, these people are actually doing something I, I understand. And so I, I felt I actually felt at home. For me, it was it was a little different because like I never called myself a punk rocker. I never called myself. <coughs> a punk I'm not rocker. a punk rocker. <coughs> but yeah, and, now, and the people I knew for the most part, we didn't call ourselves punk rockers. Punk rock was an outside label. Like we'd seen it, like like punk rock in Britain. We'd seen there was some punk rock in New York because the Ramones had already started. The Sex Pistols were already going. But we were there, like we were attracted to punk rock. But if someone came in and, and self-identified as a punk rocker, it was kind of like self-identifying as a cool person. You, yeah. imme you immediately had a suspicion of that person, and in a large percentage of the cases, you physically attacked them. You know, and you, you would cut their hair. Something would happen to that person. They'd get written on while they passed out. Yeah, <laughs> it was so. It was like, but and this for the community thing initially. That this is like for things like, like Iris and I, we have a little. The experience differs because for me, the community ended. Right about just before Penelope Spheres's um, Decline Civilization movie came out, and then with Iris and this generation that sprang up from that, that was almost like a starting point. So, like for me, like, like and for a lot of the people that were involved when I was first involved, like for the Screamers, for the artistic people, like for David Allen and various people, like they split. For Bobby done. Pin, Darby Crash, for instance, he yeah. split before that movie came out. 
<clears throat> and so there is a whole thing where the, this like we thought we were going to be in a community. We thought that finally there's this us, you know, because we were like I was just saying, a lot of misfits, a lot of like sort of loners, a lot of people who were not even by choice, but a lot of people who had been excluded from a lot of stuff, a lot of people who had been marginalized, a lot of gay, a lot of, you know, kind of not your mainstream people. And here we were all together with this, this love of this music that came from glitter. A lot of us like, everybody's yeah. sure. into Bowie. The Bowie, sugar Bowie shack. was the start the of everything. The Sugar Shack, <clears throat> yeah. And then we came to this thing and, and then we were the people you know, admitting someone or not admitting someone. We were the people judging who could belong here and who could not. And we thought we're, that was going to be the, that that was going to carry through. You're going to be and, the decision makers. Yeah, we were the decision makers. We were like the the taste makers, whatever. And in a way, we were the taste makers, whatever. But the taste changed. It went completely. What do you think? Some of that has to do with like you're saying, like you came from glitter. And I've had the conversation with Keith Morris that, like for him and me, we're the same age exactly. Uh, if you were into underground rock, right. which is what we thought of ourselves, like we were into Sonics. like the stuff coming in from. Uh, on the import racks and prog rock and yeah, sort of underground uh, yeah, weirdness like right. that. Like what? Like for what bands? Like Can and stuff like that. Can King Crimson, oh, uh, the yeah. Groundhogs, all mm -hmm, kinds of yeah. weird shit that we, you could only there, get in a lot the of that, import that, racks. Like that was kind of like with the glitter, because the glitter kind of went off to, to like everybody who like Can liked Bowie. You know, there's a huge crossover there. Mark T. Sure. of course, uh, another huge one. But it was kind of like the like the underground whatever. And then, but after the Penelope Spheres movie, like people came in for punk rock. Right. They, they were like, oh, it's punk rock. I'm punk. I'm coming for punk. But that's because the movie came out. Well, yeah. that's what happened. And yeah. and that's. That movie, so people before that, saw it and they're like, oh, what's this? And then it brought yeah. in all these. Before people it was. Calling it was themselves punk. So were the, when you say these other people, were they from like the hinterland, so well, to speak, outside the, of Hollywood? That was, the, that was the stereotype. Like the stereotype that's kind of carried over and the stereotype that was kind of like adhered to at that time was, oh, it's the beach people, it's the Orange County people, right. you know. And and then when they came in, they came in. See, here I'm still doing it, when they came in. But it was okay. it became yeah. a different scene. Like like the yeah. you can see it in the slam dance. The slam dancing initially was a really innocent thing and the slam dancing was a, was a, a way, it was a friendly thing. It was a way for guys and girls to rub up against each other. And then That's came what the jocks for. from Orange County. Then came people, JV athletes. And they and initially, like a guy would come, like, maybe when, like when the controllers first started coming around. One of the, you know, very early band. Like mm -hmm. they kind of miss, there's, I think there was one of the controllers who like kind of misapprehended what was going on. And he got a little rougher than, than was acceptable. And the girls attacked him. And then next time he was there, he was in tune with what was going on. Yeah. But more and more people came in. It, it became like this dude thing, you know, this, this like battling dude thing. Yeah. And that changed. Like I read this excerpt from the John Doe book, the, um, Jane Whelan. Uh, I haven't read that yet. Yeah, well, I Jane, haven't read it either. I read, well, Jane Whelan Guardian printed an excerpt of hers. And the two things that she seemed to indicate that I really agree with was... Uh, Intervenous use, like like the people started shooting up, mm -hmm. and then like the the way you you could see it was the difference in the slam dancing, how it became like this violent thing, and initially it was not a violent thing. No. It was very much like kind well, of. So wait, was, are you it saying it they had some? It started as art punk in Hollywood. I mean, it felt to me like it was it was more artsy, you know, with the screamers, with Jules Bates, well, and slash, the way he like, like initially, like before, like in, the initial thing you saw you, was you saw Slash magazine. 
And then, if you were really lucky, you were at the May 28, 1977 show where the Screamers debuted at the Slash headquarters. Mm -hmm. Which and, is and in the book, very interesting. Yeah, but everybody was there. Recently, David Allen and Helen Keller, like they posted this thing on May 20th. Like, where were you, 30, you know, 40, 39 years ago on May 28th? And they had a shot from that show. And, and a lot of people, like Gary Panter, really talented artist. Like, yeah. A lot of people responded, like, yeah, that's where we were. And a lot of these people are still. Very, they're still like doing what they did they're then. They're still doing what they did then, and they're still not calling themselves punk rock. No, but but so that is kind of like where you had the Slash magazine, which was very attractive. Like like the, it was really well laid out. This, the um, Melanie Neeson, she was an art director at A&M Records. She had really great, you know, eye for layout. It was black and white. She was a fantastic photographer. And then you had Steve Samuel, who was like the business guy, who was. Like a really big and not really big, but he's really into the art scene, like like the yes. L.A. art scene, and he was able to pull play people like Lou Beach and people like Gary Panter in to, as contributors. And it, the word David uses now is curated. If you use the word curated, you're, you're kind of done. Right. But they right. put together this vision of what this scene was like, and they somehow they knew the screamers, they knew the weirdos, and they were able to present like here's what here's here's this scene. <coughs> Let's make it happen. And the germs had already kind of started. The germs were, were you know, from glitter, or whatever. They were. Yeah. They wanted to do something, and we again, like everybody heard the Ramones, everybody heard the Sex Pistols, everybody heard the stuff that it didn't. From see, other it's not, cities. Which, unlike Yes or unlike King Crimson, you didn't need like a real proficiency in music to make something that was going to sound like pretty good. Well, also <coughs> L.A. wasn't on the. No one respected L.A. then. Still Liter don't. Uh, well, it took but, a while. But it took a while. I mean, Brendan Mullen, I think, when he put out those oral histories, it actually sort of, kind of helped put yeah. us on the map. But I just, I mean, I never, I never called myself a punk. But what I loved about it is that I could actually um, indulge in my old movie star like love. You know, because all the thrift shop clothing, mm -hmm. and I could actually the style. Yeah, I could take I, that style worked for me, but and also I, the style I did it was anyway. So I did it anyway in school, and people thought yeah. I was weird, and I was like, okay, I could actually blend in here. But I never felt like I could call myself a punk rocker. Like I wasn't gonna have a mohawk. I didn't want. Right. You know, I just but I I just love what about it is that everyone was allowed to do whatever they wanted to do initially. Initially, yeah, yeah initially, initially yeah. Was a there very, was no uniform. Yeah, there's no. Uniform. Well, I don't know about that. I know I never cut my hair, and uh, I remember going to see bands at the Whiskey, and I was pals with Ed Culver, and he would like being eight foot two and looking yeah. like Frankenstein. <laughs> he would say, "Hey, you hang out with me, so you don't get your ass kicked." Oh you yeah. Know? So I, remember, I mean, there was still that. I remember, I mean, yeah, but that's like I'm saying. That's when, what year was that? Well, I didn't. Okay, so that was like fair enough. I didn't move here to the tail end of 1979. Yeah, the yeah. mask was already closed. <laughs> but yeah. and also the police yeah. played there, and they were wearing bell bottoms. I remember being in the audience. People were going, "Fuck those guys! They're wearing bell bottoms." But and I was coming out here trying to check it. I lived in Riverside. I was trying to figure out. But first, uh, I got to tell you, first uh, punk show I saw because punk to me in Riverside was a thing I read about in in Rolling Stone. I couldn't. I didn't even really have an opportunity to hear it. No one I knew had the records, no radio station was playing it. Except you didn't get Rodney? Just Rodney something. No, well at that time, uh, K-Rock didn't reach Riverside. Uh, it took a few years before they made enough money to beef up their signal. See that no people don't know that. that. Yeah. We used to, do you remember when it would go on and off the air? And do you remember when it was so AM? Before to pay their bills? Yeah. So yeah. we it was a big deal because I you know yeah, I was in a, I was in a band in Riverside. We would come out here to flyer and get our stuff. And we played the Rock Corporation, by the way. Ah, and, and, uh, who, who did you play? I don't remember who else was on. That's the, the Rock Corporation. That got, the night a guy got murdered. 
Who was the guy? Some dude. He got stabbed in his ass outside. Oh, like, I, I didn't know him. You but know, they pulled everybody out, and the cops were all talking to us. And that, like, that's probably like, when they got shut down. There was, like, three down. or four of us. We were on heroin, and everyone else was like, oh, the cops. We were like, oh, the cops. And it was, it was kind of amusing. And then we saw, like, we <laughs> felt like we saw the knife being passed and hit up in the rafters, but I don't know. And then, like, I took advantage of the... Uh, oh, all yeah, the, yeah. Everybody didn't know what was going on. I took advantage of the, of the disorder to steal a really big flashlight. Ooh. That I still have. And so I think it probably it, it probably passes as a weapon too. No, you could beat. It was a cop lock flashlight. You could beat someone up with this flashlight. But anyways, when we would drive in, good thing. Uh, <laughs> you know, we would tune tune in the AM car radio on K Rock, and you had to get to about Covina <clears throat> for that to happen. It was a big deal. Okay, not because like we can hear way, this was, stuff that we don't have it's access. It's still on the same end. It's still the same end of the dial. Like, isn't it still? The no, same? but there's no AM K Rock. Oh right, 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 gone. right, right. I mean, that was back when everybody had AM radios in their cars. Right, there but was. The whole no idea access. that you don't have access to this culture now is, is it's like. For the past ten years, you have access to everything, to everything that everything. ever exists. Well, Everybody that's what's different about that's what's different Why about everything because it you, you get to, it, you you're done with it, it, and and you loved it when you found yeah. it. And you, you had treasured to hunt it down, and you could spot someone else who was hunting it down. Like when you're talking about how you and Keith Morris, you know, you, you name a couple bands. Oh yeah, I have I have Tiger Omega. I have these, you know. Oh, you have to, you know, you name a couple bands, you name a couple records, and you know enough about that person to know that you're friends. And right, like, that's true. You, know, you, yeah. you have like. Roxy Music's second album playing out the window. You go, oh, here's someone I could get along with. It was because it was not really widespread, and it was like they had gone to the trouble to ferret this shit out. You and probably shared it. a lot of other similar yeah. just because of that Getting reference. There. Yeah, yeah, the way you got there, you got maybe you took six steps to get there, and each one of those six steps was something else. You 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 went to something to Bowie to this to that. But and you then, really had to like really not care to be in a clique. To like seek that stuff out, you had to be willing to be a loner, or, or you willing were to be, not or, by choice. Yeah, yeah. by not choice, well, you were excluded. Because there was a lot of, I feel like a lot of the stuff, like the, at the mask, the reason like we were so people, I'm including, were so mean that the outsiders when they tried to come in is because we had had so much rejection, Fought so hard, and just so much rejection through junior high and high school and, and whatever, and so much low self esteem because yeah. of it. And, and there that's somebody, what felt so good about coming together. Yeah, it's like, yeah. wow, well, wait a minute, there's nothing wrong with me, like well, after being. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> at, le at least I found others yeah. that felt the same way, and I, I it was, you know, it's Well, if you, you express yourself in a way that was really unacceptable, and then you had four people with you... And they doing that the, celebrated, doing the same thing. That yeah. celebrated the yeah. same behavior. Yeah. Yeah, which was and really then you, healing, And you also had a, a lot of people who would say, I was the weirdest person in my high school, and then they'd say that it was a big boast, and I would not really say that because, I mean... I, I felt wasn't. it was a little busty, but yeah, but, I wasn't. The but you had a lot of people who felt like they were the weirdest person in their high school. Who now were here, and but it still must have been a little clicky because I know it was very clicky. Paul no, Rossler, who was in was you know the Screamers, it was and was and rude. Like people were snobby. It yeah, because he says that coming from the South Bay, he always felt an outsider, and he was in the Screamers. Yeah, well, yeah. he was in the Screamers later. He's the third keyboard player. You have to remember there was you know, there was David Brown first, who founded Dangerous Records. There was Jeff. Uh, Jeff McCall. Jeff had a, a, a Scottish last name, and then, and then there was. Uh, but he was still in by '78 or something, right? Yeah, but right? he was still was the third guy. So it was like kind of like things had been set, and like I was out by '78. So like people were already out. It was it was very much a regimented kind of thing, and like those people who were there the first, like they the like first wave. Yeah, and like the screamer machine. There was a term, the screamer machine. It was all the people who were hanging out with the screamers, and one of them was Brian Tristan, who became Kid Congo. So like yeah. they were, you know, like the the hangers on. 
were pretty solidified. Well, they were so fans. it must have been hard for him. But it, it start it, it kind of always starts out being a fan. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, I love what they're doing, and no one's like stopping them. I mean, I watch so many bands learn their instruments on stage. Yeah. You but, know. But you had to, to your point, like these bands, when they came, they had to get over this snobby, like they had to counter it. And it was always like, you know, prove it. There was always, there was always like a prove it attitude prove it to someone moment. new who came in. Yeah. Uh, I would like to Extremely roll clicky. to the present day and ask you <laughs> both a little bit about what you're doing nowadays. Uh, Iris, how do you start a publishing company? I was reading... Uh, your thing online about the whole self-publishing and you're sort of like a non-profit and well, it's, explain how all that works. It started when I was, um, Tia Chucha, which is, uh, belongs to Luis Rodriguez, who's the Poet Laureate of Los Angeles, and he's, he's just an incredible man. He does a lot for, um, you know, for the city and he does a lot for jails and institutions and he's, you know, he, he spent time in jail and is turned his life around and is you know recovered from that and helps just helps tries to give back and um my partner a razor and i uh luis was going to put out razor's book and i edited it and we had a meeting with him and he basically said you know what this is two books and i've got a stack of books before yours so it's going to be a while and so when we left uh, we did a reading and razor went back to oakland and he sent me a text he goes why don't we just start our own publishing company and I texted him back and said, okay, just thinking it would be just our books, just me and him. And, he, and then we just thought about names, and I was like, what about Punk Hostage? Because it was my URL on MySpace. You know, just kind of, you know, I called everything like book hostage, you know, record hostage, lipstick hostage. You, you know, so he said, yeah. And we started doing our own, and then people just started people that we knew and loved their writing said, hey, do you want to put out my book? And we're like, yeah, why not? So it really, it exploded. We didn't expect it to. We're at 29 books right now. I'm about to put out Michael Marcus's book, um, Number One Son, and Dennis Cruz, The Beast Is We, and my book, um, the Re you know, The Daughters of Bastard, mm -hmm. second edition, and also a book, um, L.A. River Lullaby, which is poems, and then um, notes from a punk rock crash pad, which every every chapter is a different address, mm -hmm. basically, starting in the early 70s. And that's what you wrote? I'm writing it now, yeah. Okay. So. Because, yeah, there's quite a lot of geographic moving around in the book you're in. Yeah, but each chapter will go into, it's like, oh, those, in uh, the Daughters of Bastards, like the Pink Mansion, which is one story, actually needs to be a whole book, because... That was just a small excerpt of what happened in that house. It was haunted and a lot of crazy, you know, and everyone, you know, there was parties there every night and everyone was there. Is it everyone. still pink? I kind of wanted to go by and I check it out. I drove by, no, it's beige, it's remodeled. It looks normal. It Listen. looks, yeah. It just, it was like anything, you know, any uh, creative process or project, you just start doing it and it ha takes on a life of its own. The same, the press did it that way. The bands I've been in, we never was like, oh, let's get a record deal. We were just doing it like the Ringling Sisters or the Lame Flames. We were just doing it because we were enjoying it. And then, of course, along come the record companies and ruin everything. That's what we do. Yeah. <laughs> Not you. Oh, oh, yes, me too. <laughs> I admit it. Uh, so, wait, I, I just 
want to clarify this. Do you consider this, uh, do you consider Punk Host itself publishing or is it a publishing company or kind of a weird in between the two? Well, I'm basically anyone under the umbrella. They're not self-publishing. I'm editing their books. Razor's no longer a part of the company right now. He needed to take a, he needed to take a break. He really did because it was encompassing his whole life. And, um, because, you know, it's really a labor of love. It's, we have, we let all the writers buy their books at cost and then, you know, online they get 60% of their sales and then we take the other 40% and I donate books to shelters, jails, juvenile facilities, um, battered women shelters and, um, you know, there, it's not, there's no money in it. There's none. But are you at least getting to the, are you at the point where the printing costs are covered at least? To actually get physical books in people's hands? Um, not really. Yes, no, I don't know. I've got, uh, no, I, there's an extremely a lot of debt. But it'll it'll be fine. You know, there, I, I have a vision for the future of how it's going to, how it's going to be. And I think of every one of the writers as, you know, kind of a franchise. And they have, they, they're on the website and they're not self-publishing because I'm, I'm editing it or someone else is editing it, editing it. And, um, but I, I always say, okay, what's your marketing plan? I'll help you, but I can't be, I can't brand you. I don't know how to be you. And it's very DIY. So you're the Ray Kroc of DIY publishing. <laughs> That's the, that's the vision of the future. Iris's <laughs> golden arches of, of punk hostage. Pr- no, no, no. It's the rusty It'd arches. It'd be great, though. It'd be great if that was. Oh, oh my God. You're right. It would. Yeah. But I, I, I just want to, you know, it's really fun working with other people, and I feel like it's helped my writing by sure. working with other people. And I just love collabor- the collaboration. Yeah. So, but at this point, it's like, okay, I've got five books that need to be written, and I'm I'm actually excited because I get to take a break. Like, now I get to read, like, Alan's book, and I started reading this other book called Can't Find My Way Home. Have you read that book? It's called American Stoned Age. It's from the year 2000, year 1945 to 2000, and it just talks about, like, Charlie Parker and Billie Holiday and... And Hunk, Herbert Hunky and, you know, Burroughs and Ginsburg and Kerouac and literally, you know, how drugs, you know, commingled with their creativity and he, he's just such a great writer and it's such a great book. Who is it? Uh, I'll find it. He's not somebody I think I I've heard know. of. It. I think I've heard of the book, yeah. but I don't know who wrote I, I, they, If you go on Kindle, and there's like, it goes deep into it. Mm-hmm. And I almost bought it because I wanted to keep going, but I knew it was coming any day, and luckily it came the next day. It's so well written. So I'm I'm writing, you know, I'm reading now because I'm getting to read stuff I want to. But I am spoiled because everyone on Punk Hostage, all the writers are really, really good. I'm really, you know, really proud of all the writers. I'm, like, I... Is there a screening process? It looks like if someone wants to be self-published or come to you, you, they can get it going. But is there like some kind of book or some type of thing that you would go, no, this isn't right for us? It has to be somebody, first of all, I can't be just a bunch of drug war stories and celebrating in that. Like I want there to be, you know, I came out of this and now my life is, you know, like I want, you know, some sort of survival tales, you know, and cautionary tales. But 
I really like people that are charismatic and they're already into, you know, they're already out there reading. They're, they've been writing, you know, not somebody who like is sitting around writing and the things that is going to come to me and think that I'm going to make them famous because I can't make anybody famous and they have to be involved in their, their community of writers and working, you know, working with each other and supporting each other. And like I said, not to be afraid on stage be able to read and and charismatic that's true of anything in what it doesn't matter what you're doing music art books if you're not in a community if you're not out there hustling for lack of a better term you can't expect whoever's behind you to make it happen because it yeah. won't yeah i mean i i want i like helping the young writers like i i really like helping them especially the ones that are already involved in their like the alt lit scene they're already involved they're making these fanzine even even with just paper and crayons but they're they're doing it and you know they're definitely very different than we were but they're you know they're doing their own DIY thing and but they're involved and they're not afraid of social media they're not afraid of you know, even writing a review. Like sometimes, I don't know if you've encountered this, but people say, oh yeah, I'm going to write a review on that person's book. And then I realized that they didn't do it. And I'm, and I'm thinking, they didn't do it because they're worried about their review being reviewed. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, that happens everywhere nowadays. There's a comment on the comment. Yeah, 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 of course. But I just, you know, I want people who aren't afraid to get on stage or aren't just, they're just not afraid and they actually, you know, but I will say this, all the people on my press that are really, really talented do not think they're talented. They think they're, they don't think that they're good writers. Maybe they're just humble. No, no, they really, no, they really don't. Well, that's where you've got to boost those young egos. Well, it's not just young, old, all of all everyone. Of the most, the most very talented people do not know that that, do not realize that. Well, there's a whole thing too, how, no matter how long you've been writing, you're not good enough. Right. Because you, you know, you realize, like you look at something later, and go, oh man, like that's, I could have said this different, I could have made this work better. I mean, it's, it's Everybody's it's like that, musicians thing. and everything, yeah. though, but there's a thing and like... Specifically, in, especially in writing, though, the yeah. whole... I don't know, I deal with it a lot with musicians because, especially nowadays, if you have anything like this in your house, you can redo it over and over forever, and at yeah. some point you go, get it out, get people yeah. reacting yeah. to it. It's You just can't keep living in a bubble, you have to have... Well, you can't yeah. overdo it either, exactly. which I'm guilty of it, but, you know... But you the know thing is, you, you, gotta, you gotta know that... This writing thing, you, you got to look at it as something that I'm going to be improving at for my entire life, and it's got to be work the whole time. Like you, it's like, like people. Sometimes something comes to you, and it's really easy to write, and it's just all. Just, in I, row. I call that winning the lottery. Yeah, by the way. but it's it's you know, even to know if it's good though, you have to keep working to know if it's good or not. It's it's, it's really you. a tough. Uh, it's it's a tough call. It's a, yeah yeah, but it's a great call because it kind of keeps you engaged. It's not the, you can never really like just go in and write something and think oh I'm just gonna knock this out because because you can't just it maybe you can knock it out. No, but you I'm may not a first draft like, writer. Yeah. once in a great while, but I like people. But go, even, oh, with, the, even with the first draft, you had like you have to be putting it together as you're going. You, know, you have to be really deeply into it and kind of like knowing more and more all the time how to assemble sentences, how to how to how to how just how to the put transitions how to put thoughts how to put this thing on paper so there's a clarity of understanding and it goes into someone else's mind what you wanted to go there. right and it's a really difficult thing you know yeah. and, and the more abstract the thing you're trying to transfer 
the more you have to know how to do it. And, it's, and you and want it, to do it in a way that, in not a cliche yeah. way, in your yes, own voice. in your own voice. But the, one of the great things about writing is it, it's one of the things, like, I don't know how many things there are, but it's one of the things that it's, you can keep getting better at it Yes. Until you're fucking sixty years yes. old and over, you know, yes. it's something that it's like not a like lot your of voice it's not like yeah, it's not like voice or like like sports or whatever else where you you hit a peak and then from there on you know you're in the Masters tournament. Like you could actually like keep getting better and and you can work toward that. It's it's a really engaging thing, very rewarding in that way. Also, yep. very frustrating at the yep. same time. And it's and, a, and get, it's a set for me. It's a sentence by sentence. Like I want every yeah. sentence. Yeah. Like it's it's like that. Yeah, finite. and then they have to hook up. I mean, everything has to go. Sometimes I'll write in line breaks. Like I'll take a whole story and then I'll just I'm gonna okay I'm gonna now do it in line breaks, and then I'll put it back together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you ever do that? Yeah, a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I had I just I had this recent book that I, hopefully it's gonna come out in about eight months or something, and I wrote it and I had all these extra line breaks and the, this guy is helping me. He read it. He goes. He goes. Make it normal. Put it into normal line breaks. And then when I did that, like the paragraphs were better. Like the paragraphs, right. they had little prizes in them. I noticed in your book, uh, Alan, so many people were named that I know from John Doe, Don Bowles. But then there were other people that obviously you decided or someone decided that, okay, we can't name this person. Mm -hmm. uh, how, would, how was that line drawn? It's sort of... Um, Dead or alive? Uh, no, no, no. It's, it was more... Um, like public person, not public person. Some dead or alive, but a lot of it was public person, not public person. And so, like, um, like my my best friend in there, and my you know the the wife in there. Like they're a little bit composite. And then like I created a, I created a. a there was four plunger girls. I created a fifth plunger girl. Uh. You know? And there was like 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 because you want people to have plausible deniability. You know, and so mm -hmm. if someone goes, "Hey, is that you?" They can go, "No." You know, right. it's, it just seemed like a, a courtesy. On the other hand, like like the people, like I have, like Randy, I, I feel that Randy would not. Care. I feel like Randy would be happy with what I've done. I mean, you celebrated I like his life basically. in a way. I mean, it doesn't show him in a really good light. Like my friend, mm -hmm. I have my friend Kevin. He's like. You know, you t you say you really love Black Randy, but he doesn't seem very lovable the way you turn. Oh well, neither do I. You know, and it's it's like, like this is who we were, and I feel like Randy would have been proud that I was able to pull it together and find and, and finally like get this thing out on paper. Documenting stories, yeah. yeah. Not necessarily just for an ego thing or documenting him, just that I was able to do it. Was legality, uh, you know, a no, motive in any of that? No. No, I worked when I was at Hustle. I did Asshole of the Month every month for um, the entire okay, the entire nineties, right? And it was thirteen months a year. And it, with Asshole of the Month, what I did was I purposely went and was as mean as I could about a real person mm. with real facts. And I never once got sued, never once. So there's nothing in here that's that's, that's actionable. And maybe some of that is by the ways I've changed people, right? So that there's nothing actionable. And certainly, like, I, I'm conscious when I'm writing that I don't want to get sued. But it wasn't like 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 the publisher said, hey, look, I'm afraid we're going to get sued here. Okay. Like, like the guy who is called Russ in this book, like I had lunch with him, and I said, hey, look, I have this book coming out. I'd like to use your name. He said, okay. And then I read it through again. I said, I, I don't think I should. You know, I don't think I should. And then I talked to... Tyson, the publisher, Robert, he goes, well, then we'll change it. And so we changed that guy's name, you know, so it wasn't his, his actual name. Right. Just, just right. I don't know, it just gives people when they read it, because I know that, like, um, 
for me, like to write this, a lot of conflicting emotions, a lot of conflicting mm -hmm. feelings. Mm -hmm. It was a very kind of, you know, my feelings about that time are sort of melancholy. They're sort, of, they're sort of like, it's not like a every. It's, I see. It feels to me like everyone I knew who went through this time when when I was there has this mixed emotion about it. Like everybody feels like something was lost, right? Yeah. And so I had a lot of mixed feelings when I wrote this, but. Since I'm doing it, I'm choosing that. But I want to give these other people a little bit of a cushion between, you know, what I'm saying happened. And then, then like, I haven't had anyone come up and say that didn't happen. Like, you know, I got a little video with Don Bowles that's on, my, on the Facebook page for Punkologies where he's saying, you know, <clears throat> read Punkologies, you know, Alan McDonough, he, you know, he, he, what he says about me is really hard to take, but you know what? It's all true. He, he remembers, like he remember. He's, he wrote it because he remembers, and so, like it, it was. It's. He's. I he, think he has lot, no shame about yeah, anything. No, but but he does actually. He's a, he's a really bright guy. Yes. And I feel like like, like but he, but also yeah. like he's got like kind of like, this sort of like self regard for himself where this is not going to hurt him, right? So a lot of times I feel like maybe the choice of changing the names is like like this is a person who could be hurt. Right. So it's like it hurt him last. It, it, this gives them a little buffer between the, the complete rawness of it. So that's yeah. a lot of it. And for me, it was like, you know, like in the pink match and the owner of the house, I changed his name. The hustler, I changed his name because he just doesn't deserve to have his name in print. He would probably love it, but he, he, he was hor. I mean, he took. There was, a, I remember the John Anson Ford Theater, there was a, um, a benefit, the Chili Peppers played, and somebody talked about it in, um, on Facebook, and Keith was like, isn't that where the guy ran off with all the money, him and his sister, and it was the same guy. And I was like, yep, that was him, but I, I just changed his name just because, I, I didn't, one, I didn't want to deal with him, but I just didn't feel like his name, he just, he didn't deserve to be in print. He probably would have liked it. Yeah. So, um... And yeah, it just it was a case by it was a case yeah, by case case situation. By case. Yeah. Tip, sometimes it was, it was a name that someone used that was not a real name in the first place. Then I would, I would leave it. Yeah, that happened a lot in my book too. Handily, yeah. very handily. Yeah. Uh, handily. Do you want to mention anything about what you're doing nowadays? What we were talking about before we uh, kicked into gear here on 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 record. Well, for money. <laughs> we all have to have that. I work, yeah, that. I got really lucky about a year ago. I hooked up with these guys. Who are trying to do a? Uh, we launched a website, a, a news and lifestyle uh, opinion and cultural life, you know, magazine type lifestyle. <coughs> what do you call it? Uh, online platform destination, sure. whatever you want to call it, uh, called the Kind Land. It's like thekindland.com. We call it the Kind for short. Yeah. And it's basically stories about either marijuana or off the marijuana mindset. There's a big oh, movement great. in marijuana right now. It's, 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 it could, you know, be massive. It could turn into a massive kind of like industry, state by state. It's you know, there's 26 states now that have legal uh, medical marijuana. It's just like prohibition. That's what we're it's, in the middle of. Yeah, and the way it's changing is really fascinating because every time like somewhere goes legal, there's all these kind of backroom moves and everything, and the, the cronyism. It's like right out front, and it's very much like what it must have happened when prohibition. I'm started. sure. Yeah. It's amazing. Like well, like you'll see some guy from California, like in Washington State. There was a guy who was part of the commission that wrote the regulations for how it was going to be. Wow. And then he quits that commission and he joins one of the marijuana companies. And, and so and then oh yeah, he gets a license. 
license because the licenses are all like kind of closely held. Right. And then they're, they're all like, like, like to it's apply. It's like liquor licenses. It's beyond that, my friend. Oh, and to apply wow. for, like in Hawaii, to apply for a license, you had to show a million dollars liquidity. And then for each uh, dispensary or grow facility you were going to have, is you had to show another $175,000. Is that liquidity. where the hedge fund people come in? The hedge fund people are crazy. There's all kinds <laughs> of hedge fund people. And there's hedge fund people who only deal in weed now. Like there's a company yes. called Privateer that has stuff going on in Canada. They're exporting weed from. Uh, not weed, but, but weed extracts from Canada to Croatia. They have uh, interest in a company in Belgium that exports to France. They, they have, you know, it's they huge. have a, a, a magazine site called Leafly. They, you know, it's just, it's, well, they I get have... teamed up with um, the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York to try and do research there. And it's just like, it's, it, it could really boom. And as it booms, the demographic's gonna boom because people my age who like smoke pot when they were kids then stopped. Mm -hmm. Now they're being prescribed all these different antidepressants, they're being prescribed pain pills, they're being described sleep, sleeping medications. Sure. All those things are extremely toxic. Oh, yeah, they're so horrible. they're gonna go and they're gonna try, this is my, my guess is what's gonna happen. They're gonna go and they're gonna try illegal, highly, you know, hybrid weed and maybe they're going to like it. a certain percentage of them are going to go to weed. I think, and, and they've taken the ability out of the, you know, because when, when weed got too thinky, and then this it, is it a, turned this on you, be, this is a different kind. That may be a myth. Yeah, that's well, not, I think that's a myth. Like, I'm not smoking was, weed myself, yeah. but I do know people who've been sucked in by the sativa, uh, yeah. uh, sativa indica thing, right. and how it's supposed to be all controlled, and no more paranoia, and they get sucked in, they start smoking, and then they realize, oh no, this is just fucking weed, I hate weed. So, yeah, so yeah, it's yeah, still, yeah, yeah. It's yes. still weed. Yeah, well, but you were talking about like, Maybe within a year, even you're going to start seeing it becoming just recreational. Like well, this there's, there's there's going to be a thing on the ballot in November in California for if it's going to be recreational or not, which is going to cause a huge it's, like bunch well, of weird things because uh, California is basically recreational now because it's so easy to get a medical card, mm -hmm. and that's why there's so many Exciting. different dispensaries and so many producers and so many growers. But if it goes recreational. Then they're going to have a whole new set of regulations, and it's going to be like in New York or wherever else, where to get a license, you have to put up a million dollars. Well, also, and then I saw a thing on the internet, a guy, it showed a picture of this guy going, I've done 20 years for, you know, you know, a, a, a pound of marijuana, and then they show Brock Turner, I'm doing six months for, you know, yeah. rape, and so... And, and he'll be out in three. Yes, he'll be out in three. So and like you know, Johnson Johnson Clara, ten years for one joint. You know, the yeah. well, this is another question too, because once once it becomes legal in a place, then you do you go back and do you get um, amnesty for people who are already in? in prison and you don't necessarily you don't you don't immediately. You have to go and fight for it, and sometimes case by case, or sometimes if if there's a you know a stakeholder organization, they'll go in and they'll try and fight for it in a larger way. But it's it's gonna. There's a lot of like really kind of interesting, exciting things going on. I'm ready this, to start my own bakery reason. personally. <laughs> but so you're saying you don't actually smoke pot yourself at this point? Oh in time. God, no. And you neither? No way. So I would say, as someone who still occasionally smokes pot, it's 50 times stronger than yeah. when we used yeah. to have it. So you talk about it becoming recreational. I mean, and people can just go get it like you buy beer. Not that that's great either, but do I really want people driving around no, with another thing that's going to mow me you, down you crossing the street? Yeah, still, no, that's a whole other thing. That's it's, gotta, it's all going to be factored in. It's yeah, you can't, in. just because you have a medical card, you can't 
drive on marijuana. That's but there's the a same. whole. But, there's another but whole people do all the time. Yeah, they do. Well, they do drive drunk all the of time. Of course, too. that's not good either. <laughs> well, the no. drunk so, But I mean, just we're adding yet another yeah. thing that could be kind of a bummer. Yeah, but, but they're really already doing it. They're already doing it. Yeah. But there's also like the whole. There's a difficulty with marijuana testing because like the what they what they look for in the blood stays in the blood for like a, up a, to month, a month and a half. So right? you're not testing for impairment. You're testing for this lingering like. Yeah, that's true. Thing. No, that's true. Yeah. So it's but they have to they have to overcome that. They have to figure out some way to. There's got to be a new. They yeah. they'll find a new test. Yeah. I mean, come on. Like, there's going to be so much money involved if it goes, you know, once the dominoes start to really fall. Do you know that, that Philip Morris has been waiting like 30 years for this? People oh, say sure. this all the time, but, you know, there's no document, documentation of that. But but right. I do feel that... But wouldn't like, they be set up to just dive well, right in? They're set up for the growing yeah. and the the, the liquors come to set up for the distribution and the pharmaceutical companies are set up for the research. So, like, the thing but is... But a cigarette company would also be set up uh, for just packaging it. That's well, a, in a way, instead of a bag, here's your pack of joints. But they're not set yet. They're going to be set like when you you'll, there will be a tipping point and, and I don't know if it's when it goes federal because at some point if enough states go it's going to go federal you think but at some point like those those giant pharmacies is going to come in and, and right now there's a big schism between like the long-term growers like in Northern California who oh, for three generations yeah. and the equity companies like the equity companies like privateer who are only doing marijuana stuff so there's a big schism there well but and those when, guys are master growers the guys that have been doing yeah, it for years, but, and, years and then when the what's going to be really interesting is when the pharmaceuticals the tobacco and the alcohol people decide to come in, who are they going to keep and who are they going to push out? And it's, 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 it's so like, similar like there's so much stuff that's going to that's going to play out. And, and, and like but, the people, but the, the those old master growers, they see these equity people as being the corporate the, the corporate invaders, and they're not looking like one step further to the real corporate invaders, the people who have like the like the people at the at the federal level, like the tobacco people, the pharmacy people, and the liquor people have so much power. You know, they have right. so much ingrained influence in Congress that it's just, you know, they're, 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 they're going to be, they're going to mow over or whatever. Yeah, like like and Amazon. So, Amazon, yeah. you could probably be able to buy it on Amazon. But I have to say, I had a neighbor who was dying from throat cancer, and um, my brother's friend started this to-go business, this weed to-go business. And I literally, he was in so much pain and I wa it really helped him, yeah. you know, it was like, I, I then I was like, okay, th there is a need for it. It does help. And I'm really it's a into good it, thing. especially as like a medicinal. Yeah. And as a, um, alternative to like a lot of the pharmaceuticals, whether it's the antidepressants, whether it's the right. sedatives, whether it's the pain pills, like it's a lot. Uh, like it, even, even if you think of it as a negative, which I don't, it's it's a way less of a. But there's a one thing, and I don't know if this has to do with sativa or whatever, but they do say marijuana can lead to schizophrenia. And yeah, there's some these studies, but then the schizophrenia is already there. There's some. Is there's it, some. It was inconclusive. Do you remember when it turned on you? Marijuana did it ever turn on you? In a way, because it turned on me at sixteen. Yeah, I've been smoking it and selling it with my boyfriend when we were like thirteen. It always made me nervous. Like there was always that whole nervous kind of aspect to it. But I loved it. I would smoke. You know, you didn't care. <laughs> yeah, it kept. Yeah, well, I. I mean, I couldn't answer the door. I yeah, right, right. Phone, yeah. Like, what is I that? Okay. Is it really ringing, or am I just hearing? <laughs> that? I knew it was ringing. I just didn't want. I don't know who it is. Yeah. You know. That's a now, weird. Now, now they have caller ID. I should be yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Iris, I know you wanted to read something. It's uh, it's called Sunset Boulevard Part Two, and it's basically God. I don't know if I want to be do the spoiler, but um, it's around the sunset. It. It takes place at the uh, 
end of the eight, 70s and the beginning of the 80s. And, <laughs> oh, I've got, you've got mail. And um, I'm living right by, I'm living right by the whiskey. And, um, and you know, punk shows are happening at the whiskey and there's always a riot. And, and the rest is self-explanatory. Of course. Um, shall I just start? Sure, okay. kick it in. Sunset we got Bo it. Sunset Boulevard Part 2. I've always been mesmerized by Hollywood Boulevard and the Sunset Strip and its history. Growing up in L.A., I've watched the Sunset Strip go through many changes. Being from here is very different than coming from here with a goal in mind. I'm not saying I didn't and don't have dreams and goals, but I've seen so many people come here from other places, change their names and faces with a story or three up their sleeves. One slice of my life comes to mind with the Sunset Strip playing a big part in it. The 70s were coming to a close with a few years left and things were changing fast. My mom had just come, my mom had just run away from home, got married in Vegas, shocked up with her, my stepdad and didn't look back. Not even a, if you ever need anything, honey, you know where to find me. Nothing. I just remember her coming home like a teenager, New Year's Day, bubbly and giddy, announcing, I'm married, happy new year. I'm just here to grab some, some things and don't you just love my diamond ring? Part of me was thinking, thank God I'm free. And then another voice kicked in. Wait a minute. You're a teenager. You have no job. And now you have nowhere to live. Okay. So what I did was what any red-blooded teenager would do. I got a place with my boyfriend, Bob, in Hollywood. Bob looked like a cross between Sid Vicious and Johnny Rotten with a Cockney accent. And um, a Cockney English accent. And much cuter than either one of them. I knew he was trouble, but let's be honest. Bad boys always won. We found a huge house for $275 a month, all utilities included, just two blocks from the Whiskey A Go Go, and we were madly in love. The Whiskey was having a lot of punk shows at the time, which always meant a guaranteed riot on the Sunset Strip. The West Hollywood sheriffs didn't know what to make of punk rock, similar to any subculture. If it doesn't scare the parents and the police, it's not doing its job. And punk rock definitely had them scared. Even the record companies seemed afraid of punk rock. And in this time, Hollywood, being the entertainment capital of the world, seemed lost and confused and deserted. Or maybe everyone was just in rehab from all the coke they'd been doing. But whatever was going on, the streets of Hollywood, the one-time packed Sunset Strip, was empty and barren, not even tourist sightings. But I didn't care. I was just happy to be living in a place where I could walk to all the clubs with my fake ID and get in for free or on the guest list. I had a ritual. Every night at 5 p.m., I'd walk up to the whiskey and enter through the side door with whatever band was playing, as if I was part of the crew, as they were loading in and getting ready to do their sound check. Bands like The Dam, Johnny Thunders, and The Heartbreakers, The Clash, The Police, The Dead Boys, The Specials, Madness, and locals like X, Fear... The Gears, The Germs, The Screamers, The Circle Jerks, Top Jimmy and the Rhythm Pigs, and the list goes on. Once I was inside, I'd just stay through the night for the show. Bob would get off work, meet me there, and it was the perfect setup. Eventually, I knew everyone on, the on a first-name basis on the strip, from the guys who worked at Gil Turner's liquor store to all the doormen at all the clubs. The strip was my home. It was my Mayberry. It's all a little fuzzy now, and the last few years of the 70s blended into one another. But what I do remember is 
There was no pay to play. There was tons of parking and no restriction signs that you needed to read five times over to make sure your car wasn't going to get towed. People still bought music and there was still vinyl. Bob and I were young and truly didn't know how good we had it. And then came the 80s. Bob and I were in our second house, but still two blocks from the strip. The rent was still 275 a month and still with all utilities included. But we were growing apart. He was starting to he was starting to not come home nights. He was painting Neil Young's ex-wife's mansion. Carrie Snodgrass, may she rest in peace. She'd been a famous actress, but those days were over. And even though he wasn't telling me, I knew he was having an affair with this older woman. And I also knew it wasn't love. Carrie was surrounded by all kinds of famous people. And Bob was starstruck. He was Carrie's boy toy and looking at being a kept man. And, well, you do the math. No matter how much in love we were, <clears throat> Carrie could give Bob a life that I couldn't. He could quit his job and party around the clock with rich and famous musicians and actors, most all icons. Love did not enter this equation, and I knew it was only a matter of time. I remember it like it was yesterday. In a matter of three days, my whole life changed. Still a little fuzzy. But I remember being at Okie Dogs. It was where everyone went after the Starwood, another great club owned by the notorious gangster Eddie Nash. Eddie owned everything. It seemed like every time I got a job, I would eventually find out that Eddie Nash was my secret boss. I was constantly, I was constantly accidentally getting a job for the mob. But Okie Dog, probably, uh, probably owned by Eddie, who knows and who cares, catered to a different crowd, to a punk rock crowd, and it was always open. And on the night of December 6th, Darby Crash, the lead singer of The Germs, was walking up to everyone, one at a time, saying goodbye. I was with Nick, who would eventually become my husband a few years later. We both looked at each other as Darby walked away and said, is he planning to kill himself? And the answer was yes. December 7th, 1980, Darby Crash, a.k.a. Paul Beam, was found dead of an apparent intentional overdose. This hit the city hard. It's all anyone could talk about. Until December 9th. I was laying in bed. Bob, were, Bob was nowhere to be found. And even though this was, wasn't unusual, something in the pit of my stomach was screaming, this is it. It's over. And she won. And just as I was about to finally fall asleep, at around 3 a.m., the flashing of police lights outside my front window woke me up. I could hear my neighbor, Tyler, yelling my name from the back seat of the police car. Iris, 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 tell them. Tell them I'm a good guy and I would never kill anyone. A few seconds later, there was a pounding on my door and a voice bellowed, open up or we're coming in, an offer I couldn't refuse. I opened the door to two policemen asking me if I knew Tyler, and I said yes, he was my neighbor. While the police were questioning me, Tyler was still yelling, tell them, tell them I'm a good guy and would never kill anyone. Tyler was a biker. The week before, he accidentally set his house on fire while fixing his bike and almost blew up the whole block. His house was big with no furniture, just a lot of bikes and, a, and bike parts. I think it's safe to say that all the bikes were stolen and his house was being used as a chop shop for whatever biker club he was prospecting for. It was probably one of the conditions of his initiation into the club. I tried to never know any details. But just by looking at his place, it was pretty obvious what was going on. They asked me a few more questions to which I had no answers. I did tell them that Tyler was a good guy and I couldn't see him hurting a flea. But the cops didn't care. They just thanked me and, sh 
and started to leave. Right before the cops got in their car, one of them yelled up to me, Oh, by the way, John Lennon was just shot and killed in New York City. I stood in my doorway, speechless. What the fuck? Am I dreaming? John Lennon assassinated? Darby's death was a shot heard around the city, but John Lennon's death was a shot heard around the world. No longer a normal Monday night. No longer a normal Monday night football. The following Thursday, the LA Weekly came out with John Lennon on the cover of it. If it wasn't for Mark David Chapman assassinating John Lennon, Darby Crash would have been the cover story that week. Ironically, his death eclipsed by rock and roll, the very music punk rock was claiming to be dead. It was dead all right, but it still grabbed the headlines, and rightly so. A few days later, Bob finally showed up to get his things and to tell me, Iris, I'm moving out and getting married. It's best this way. I hope you have a happy new year. I told him, I'm sure you'll make a beautiful, blushing bride. Welcome to the 1980s, I thought, a new year and a new decade, and like a tape loop running over and over through my head, all I could think was, history does repeat itself, whether I like it or not. I was still young, but felt like i just watched a Hollywood movie, a Hollywood noir movie. The movie Sunset Boulevard came to mind, and if you haven't seen it, this isn't a spoiler, because the movie starts out the main star floating dead in a pool, posthumously telling the story of how he got there, dead in a pool. Like Bob, he was taken in by a rich older actress whose heyday had long passed, but she refused to believe it, and took him in as her boy toy. I haven't heard from Bob, but I sure hope he can swim. Thank you very much. Uh, I know you. I know it's a true story, but come on, 275, a couple blocks from Sunset, I, even I back then, twice. I have it away. Both okay. times Pleasant and a bunch of the runaways lived like two houses down, like our lives parallel. They lived in that. Um, they lived in the apartment building on Palm. Well, Joan lived and in the condo. She had a condo there in San Vicente. Yeah, and we moved, literally moved kind of at the same time. But I was, you know, locked in with my boyfriend. And that's when we started to get to know each other. But no, yes, it was 275. It was 275. Amazing. But the wages <laughs> matched. Yeah. Well, we're going to leave it there on that happy note. Thank you for uh, listening to... I hope uh, I didn't hog all the time. No, 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 we all talked a lot. <laughs> I'm a fucking lot pissed, Iris. <laughs> Next time, <laughs> you behave. All right. <laughs> Thanks sorry. for tuning in. We'll see you all later. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Toned Up Sessions. Join us in two weeks when our guest will be Vicki Hamilton, author of Appetite for Dysfunction.